Jeremiah chapter 51 comes, of course, towards the end of the book of Jeremiah. And it is a long and terrible chapter in the book of Jeremiah. It's the longest chapter. I think it's 65 verses. What's more is chapter 50 and chapter 51 together are like twins of judgment. These are two long, if I could say brutal, chapters describing judgment upon Babylon. The Babylonian Empire ruled the world in the days of Jeremiah. And what's so fascinating about this, at least it's fascinating to me, is this particular thought. That throughout the book of Jeremiah, up until chapters 50 and 51... God has been announcing his judgment upon the kingdom of Judah, the tribes of Israel, the judgment to come upon Judah through the Babylonian empire. Yet now, at the end of the book, he says, yes, I used Babylon as my instrument of judgment upon Judah, but don't think I've forgotten about Babylon. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. Now, before we get into the text, I just need to, to, to answer a question right up front. Who cares? I mean, it's possible for us to read this and go, yeah, God judged the Babylonians. Long time. Well, look, there's going to be a lot for us to take notice of in this. But let me give you two principles. Number one is that God still judges among humanity. His judgment among nations has not yet ended. Now, I'll admit, sometimes it's a dangerous thing for preachers or for leaders to say, well, this was the judgment of God or that was the judgment of God. Sometimes you can't see it clearly until the perspective of history. But sometimes with the perspective of history, you can see it. You know, probably the most cataclysmic thing ever to happen to the United States of America was the Civil War. It was a cataclysm upon America with rivers of blood, with hundreds of thousands of dead. It was just a terrible, terrible catastrophe. Now listen, it was understood in that day and even more clearly with a historical perspective that that was God's judgment upon America for the crime of slavery. It was the judgment of God. And it was understood so in that day. Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address, he said exactly that. That that if it was God's will, and I'm paraphrasing here, to, to account for every drop of blood that was shed from the back of a whipped slave by the death of a soldier, then so be it. The judgments of the Almighty are true. Now, we can say perhaps with other instances, it can be a dangerous thing to do it up close. But the principle stands, God's judgment is still present among people today. That's one thing. The other thing, just to file away in the who cares category, what we're going to read about here is tough judgment. No doubt about it. It's it's tough to read. The eternal judgment that men and women will face will be worse. Put that into perspective. We don't like to talk about it. You know, what, one of the worst things you can accuse a preacher of today, one of the worst things you could say about a preacher, he's a hellfire and damnation preacher. 
That's like, whoa, that's terrible. And you know what? I suppose there's a certain attitude. There's a certain character that people have in their mind when they go along with that. They're thinking of the guy who almost enjoys telling people that they're going to burn in hell. But friends, please, please, let's understand. If eternal judgment is real, if it's real, if what this book says about God's eternal judgment is real, then it's worth everything to escape it. Keep that in mind as we compare the judgment that's to come upon Babylon with eternal judgment. Here we go, Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Leb Kamai, a destroying wind, and I will send winnowers to Babylon who shall winnow her and empty her land. For in the day of doom, they shall be against her all around. Against her, let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her young men. Utterly destroy all her army. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans and those thrust through in her streets. For Israel is not forsaken nor Judah by his God, the Lord of hosts. And through their land was filled with sin. Excuse me, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Well, here's the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's continuing on from the previous chapter. Chapter 50 was all about judgment against Babylon. Chapter 51 as well. What these are, probably a collection of various judgments against Babylon that were pronounced against that empire by Jeremiah and gathered together in these two chapters. Verse 2, he says, I will send winnowers to Babylon. He used the picture of a destroying wind that would winnow Babylon as grain is processed. You know, that's how they would process grain in the ancient world. They'd get it and they'd cast it up in the air and a breeze would blow away the chaff and the heavier grain would do it. It it was a way to blow away the worthless. And God says, I'm going to send a wind of judgment against Babylon and it'll blow away everything that is useless. It will utterly destroy all her army. Now, we mentioned this last week when we went through Jeremiah chapter 50, but it's worthy for us to mention again. We have prophecies that were fulfilled in one sense in the conquest of Babylon, not far from Jeremiah's own time. Yet, there are aspects of the judgment that's described against Babylon here that were not quite fulfilled. And what this leads us to is to realize that there will be a Babylon of the end times against which will come a more complete judgment. You'll see what I'm talking about as we go on. But it's no mistaking that in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18, you have God's judgment pronounced against Babylon the Great. And it's connected with these two chapters. Yet, look at the good news in verse 5. For Israel is not forsaken nor Judah. God's judgment upon Babylon would be one display of the truth that he had not forsaken his people. In fact, he would bring judgment against those who conquered his people. Look at whatever empire, whatever nation, whatever people have set themselves against the Jewish people, they have been judged and conquered. It's just a law of history. I'm not even quoting Bible. I'm just quoting history. The Babylonians came against Israel they were conquered. The Greeks came against Israel, they were conquered. The Romans came against Israel, they were conquered. The Christian church in the Middle Ages came against the Jews and it received its own kind of curse. And on into the modern age, 
The British Empire itself began to decline precipitously once it broke faith with Israel. And in the 20th century, when Germany and other nations came against the Jewish people, they themselves were devastated by judgment. Now again, it's because, look at the principle in verse 5, Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah. You know, it was true in a direct sense that the conquest of Babylon was a blessing for God's people. Because as long as they were under the Babylonians, there was no release from exile. But when the Persians and Medes conquered the Babylonians, they gave them permission to go back into the land. Anyway, with the judgment to come, look at what it says in verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore the nations are deranged. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. I think those last words are given sarcastically. It's going to be destroyed so devastatingly. Oh yeah, maybe you can maybe put a little band-aid on that and it'll be fixed, but it won't be fixed. Because the devastation that will come upon Babylon will be complete. Therefore, verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just give you a principle. It's never good to remain in a place that's a target of God's judgment. Isn't that a good thing? to? If a place is a target of God's judgment, get out of there. You don't want to be associated with it. So he says, flee from the midst of Babylon. But notice this, verse 7 He says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. Drinking from a cup of judgment is a familiar figure in the scriptures. And God says, I used Babylon as a golden cup of judgment upon other nations, but now I'm going to bring judgment upon them. So verse 8, wail for her. He's mocking them with sarcasm. Now verse 9, we would have healed Babylon, but she's not healed. Forsake her and let us go everyone to his own country for her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord. The vengeance for his temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what he has spoken against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your covetousness. The Lord of hosts has sworn by himself. Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts. And they shall lift up a shout against you. Now again, when God in verse 8 said, hey, maybe we could put a band-aid on Babylon's problem. How did the nations reply? Look at verse 9. Forsake her and let us go. Forget about Babylon. We want to save ourselves. But in the midst of that, look at what God does in verse 10. He says, the Lord has revealed our righteousness. Check this out. The right standing of God's people was eventually revealed in the judgment against Babylon. This showed that it was not just a matter of, oh, 
Babylon's gods are mightier than the gods of Judah. That's why the Babylonians conquered. No, 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 that's not it. Why did the Babylonians conquer the people of Judah? Because God designed that they bring judgment. And then why was Babylon conquered and turned? Because God designed that he bring judgment against the Babylonians. This was a justification of God's people and a revelation of the righteousness of the work of the Lord. So using his characteristic vividness, look at what he says in verse 11, make the arrows bright. Again, Jeremiah envisions the battle coming against Babylon through the kings of the Medes who were part of the aligned kingdoms that conquered over Babylon. And they came to bring, look at the phrase in verse 11, the vengeance for his temple. God's judgment against Babylon was in part because they destroyed the temple Solomon had built unto the Lord. God said, no, you destroyed my temple I'm going to bring judgment against you. Now, you you may be saying, stop, stop, stop. Wait a minute here. I thought God appointed the Babylonians to bring judgment against Judah. Isn't that what we've been reading for about 50 chapters in the book of Jeremiah? That God has determined that the Babylonians bring judgment against the people of Judah. Do we get that? Yes. And you say, now, wait a minute. How is it that God is going to judge them for bringing what he has appointed. Aha, friends, here's a strange circle that we have to deal with in the dealings of men with God. Here's the circle. God appoints a judgment to come. Secondly, God uses a human instrument for that judgment, such as the Babylonian Empire. Third, the human instrument was not motivated by God, but by their own sinful desires. Then fourthly, God brings judgment upon the instrument that he used. In other words, does anybody think it worked like this? That Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, said, oh Lord, how do you want me to serve you? Do you want me to serve you by bringing judgment upon the people of Judah? Well then, Lord, I will be your instrument. Send me forth. Does anybody think it worked like that? What motivated Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the people of Judah? It was the wickedness and the greed and the power-hungry nature of his own heart. Therefore, God could both use Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment and judge him for bringing the judgment. Because again, of the wickedness of his own heart. But this was the end of it. Verse 13 Your end has come, the measure of your covetousness. And he says, I will fill you with men as with locusts. He's picturing the city of Babylon filled with conquering soldiers. Now verse 15. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasures. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image, for his mold is image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he's the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, The Lord of hosts is his name. 
Now in the midst of this section announcing the judgment to come upon Babylon, God also describes how he is greater than any of the pagan idols which surround uh, the, the, the nations around. That's why he says in contrast to them, verse 15, he has made the earth by his power. Yahweh is not only a God of judgment, he's a God of power and wisdom and understanding and all of it is evident in creation. Therefore, it's foolishness for people to make idols the way they do. Look at what it says in verse 17. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image. When you understand the greatness of Yahweh, the idols made by men's hands seem absolutely ridiculous. And friends, isn't it true? Aren't idols ridiculous compared to the Lord our God? I remember reading a story about a missionary who went to convert some South Sea Islanders, and he went to some island out there in Polynesia, and these were pretty hardcore idolaters and pretty brutal people, as some of those people of those islands were. And so uh, the, uh, the missionary got the king, or the, the, the tribal elder, converted. And, and the tribal elder was convinced to stamp out idolatry among his people. And so this is what he did. He gave everybody, okay, everybody bring all your idols to the center of our village. And everybody brought all their idols, the big ones, the little ones, all that. And this is what he said. He said, all right, all you idols, I want you to know that I'm a Christian now and I serve Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells me that all idols are foolish and should be destroyed. So I'm going to destroy all of you idols. And everybody in the village gasps when he said that you can't destroy the idols, that, that something bad will happen to you. Because I'm going to destroy all you idols, but I'll tell you what, I'll be fair, I'll give you a running start. <laughs> so I'm going to count to 20 and get away the best you can, and then I'll destroy you. So he counts to 20 or whatever the number was, and of course nobody went, and then he just went through and he hacked all the idols to pieces. You get the point, they can't move. They're just projections of men's desires and the creativity of their own hands. Now listen, we say, well, ha, 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 the guy who worships that statue. But uh, how about the guy who worships that home or that car or that position or whatever it might be? Idolatry doesn't stop when you take away the little statue. The human heart can make an idol out of anything. And we need to put away our idolatry and see the greatness of the Lord our God. You see, God, notice how he describes himself in verse 19. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. The work of the metalsmith is powerless, but Yahweh is the maker of all things. And friends, isn't that a beautiful title for God? The portion of Jacob. You know what the portion is in this idea? It's the idea of the inheritance. Yahweh is Israel's inheritance. If that was true under the old covenant, how much more is it true that under the new covenant, God is the inheritance of the believer? You you know, haven't you thought from time to time, wouldn't it be great to have a big inheritance? You know, that uh, rich uncle you never knew or whatever of, that man left you a bundle and a... Wouldn't that be great to have just this ultimate inheritance? Man, that would be the best. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't know if you got a rich uncle, but I know you got a precious inheritance. The Lord is your portion. And it's better than any worldly wealth or anything that might be bequeathed to you in this world. 
I tell you, you have something that will last for all of eternity. The Lord is your portion. You are not left without an inheritance. You're not left without somebody who cares about you and will watch after you and is provided for all your needs. The Lord is your portion. Just as he was the portion of Jacob, he is our portion under the new covenant. Going on now, verse 20. He says, you, again, speaking of uh, Babylon here, you are my battle axe and my weapon of war. For with you I will break the nation in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I will break in pieces the horse and rider. With you I'll break in pieces the chariot and its rider. With you I will break in pieces men and women. With you I will break in pieces old and young. With you I will break in pieces the old man and the maiden. With you I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. And with you I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen. With you I will break in pieces governors and rulers. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. You see, listen. The same God who rules over creation can use people as he pleases, sometimes as his instrument with judgment. And so 10 times in this phrase, with you, with you, with you, I used Babylon as my instrument of judgment. But verse 24 says, I will repay Babylon. The judgment was to come upon them. Now beginning at verse 25, Look at how God's going to bring together many different kingdoms to come against Babylon in judgment. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the flocks and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. Set up a banner in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call the kingdoms together against her. Arat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a general against her. Cause the, the horses to come up like the bristling locusts. Prepare against her nations. With the kings of the Medes, its governors, and all its rulers, all the land of his dominion. And the land will tremble and sorrow for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon has ceased fighting. They've remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. They became like women. They have burned her dwelling places. The bars of her gate are broken. One runner will meet another and one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on all sides. The passages are blocked. The reeds they have burned with fire and the men of war are terrified. Well, that's a long section, but did you notice how it began? Look at verse 25. It says, behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. Sometimes God uses mountains as a figure for governments or empires. And God says, Babylon, you were a destroying empire. You were a destroying mountain, but now I am against you. I used you as an instrument of judgment against others, but now I am bringing judgment against you. Verse 27, so call the kingdoms together against her. And God called together a confederation of kingdoms to conquer the Babylonians. Now, by the way, 
when you look forward to the ultimate destruction of Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, that's also by a confederation of kingdoms. And when it comes, it'll devastate them. Verse 30, their might has failed. They became like women. The soldiers of Babylon would not be able to stand against their invaders. They would flee in the same kind of terror and confusion that they had inflicted upon many other kingdoms. Matter of fact, verse 32 is interesting. It says, the reeds they shall burn with fire. There were reedy swamps all around the city of Babylon. And the invading armies of the Medes and the Persians set those on fire to run off or to to prevent any way of escape of the soldiers of Babylon from the city itself. Now verse 33. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is time to thresh her. Yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me, has crushed me, has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Let the violence be done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and let my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. You see, now the picture is Babylon being like a threshing floor. Before God likened the work of Babylon and its judgment to be like winnowing, now it's like a threshing floor. You know what a threshing floor was like? They would lay the grain down on a hard, sometimes a stone floor, and then they would have a heavy oxen or cattle walk over it to crush the grain before winnowing. This was an act of crushing, not an act of separating. And God says, you know what? I'm going to crush Babylon. Babylon is going to be like my winnowing floor. But the end of it would be like a good harvest unto God and his people. You see, Jerusalem cried out, as in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He's crushed me. But God will bring judgment upon Babylon itself. Now, verse 36 Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions whelps. In their excitement, I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the Lord. I'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. God promised, look at those words in verse 36. I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. God pledged to take up the case of Judah and Jerusalem and that he would bring Babylon to judgment and desolation. I want you to get this picture in mind. Here's a little, little nation, the kingdom of Judah. And here's a great big empire, the empire of Babylon. Ladies and gentlemen, what can the little kingdom do against the mighty empire? When the mighty empire wants to conquer them, when they want to eat them up and spit them out, there's nothing that the little kingdom can do. That little kingdom feels completely powerless in the face of the mighty empire. Doesn't it feel like that 
with the people of God in this world sometimes. I don't want to make you depressed. But do you get the feeling sometimes that we are so small and insignificant that the world will just swallow us up and spit us out without thinking twice about it? Think about who the world is really interested in. Really interested in. Um, Is it anybody who's known for righteousness and godliness in this world? I, I, I mean, if it is... It's somebody usually who's like a sports star who's also a Christian, but they like them because they're a sports star and they're willing to tolerate the Christianity business but mock it along the way. Let me tell you, it seems like the world is around to swallow us up. Can I just read to you that verse once again? It's beautiful where he simply says in verse 36, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. Oh, oh, little, little tiny Judah What can it do in the face of a great big empire? Well, listen, God's going to use the empire to bring judgment upon Judah. That's true. But you know what? God's going to take care of that empire. God will plead the case of his people in this world. It seems like we are weak and without defense, but we have the mighty God of all creation on our side. It's really one of those things that just makes you remind of the fact that one with God is a majority. That's all you need. You just need to have God with you and that's it. And that's why God says, verse 39, I will make them drunk. I'm going to make Babylon like a foolish drunk man who can't defend himself. And you know what's interesting about that? Is if you look it up in Daniel chapter 5, you'll find that the city of Babylon was conquered while its leaders were in the midst of a drunken feast. Let me read to you from Herodotus. Uh, It says this, Owing to the great size of the city, the outskirts were captured without the people in the center knowing anything about it. And there was a festival going on and they continued to dance and enjoy themselves as they learned the news the hard way. This is from an ancient Greek historian known as Herodotus. And he describes how when they conquered Babylon, they were in a great big party. And the city was conquered and the party still went on until... The Medes and the Persians said, it's over, you're finished. God judged them just as he promised and he would punish punish Babylon and her idols. Look at it here starting at verse 41. Oh, how Shishak is taken. And oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. She is covered with the multitude of its waves. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. I will punish Bel in Babylon. I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nation shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. My people go out of the midst of her. And let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord, lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land. A rumor will come one year, and after that in another year, a rumor will come and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be ashamed, and all her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously joyously over Babylon for the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. 
Well, again, Babylon will fall. It will be taken. Symbolically, verse 42, the sea has come up over Babylon. And then it says in verse 42, the wall of Babylon shall fall. I just need you to pause and think about this for a moment. It's fascinating that in the fall of Babylon that was very near to Jeremiah's time, the walls did not fall. They were conquered, but the walls did not fall. There are aspects to this pronouncing of judgment against Babylon in chapter 50 and in chapter 51 that are not yet fulfilled. And I say not yet, why? Because if you read Revelation chapter 17 and 18, what are those two chapters? Revelation chapter 17 and 18. I'll say it one more time. Revelation chapter 17 and 18. You read those about the fall of Babylon in the very end times and you'll realize that with many prophetic passages there's an aspect that's fulfilled immediately and there's an aspect that's fulfilled at the very end. And this is true in this. The walls of Babylon never fell back then but they will one day. That's why they could say both now and then. Look at it here in verse 45. My people go out into the midst from the midst of her. This was a helpful call from God's people in exile that they should not put their trust and their confidence in the resources that were going to be conquered. But regarding the ultimate judgment of Babylon, this is what God says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, and lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God says it in the future. Come out of her. Come out of Babylon that is to come. And all of them at the end of it, verse 48, then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon. The righteous will rejoice even with singing over the justice and judgments of God. Verse 49. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. You who have escaped the sword, get away. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will bring judgment on her carved images and throughout all the land the wounded shall groan, throw Babylon were to mount up to heaven and though she were to fortify the height of her strength, yet from me plunderers would come to her, says the Lord. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice. Through her waves roar like great waters and the noise of her voice is uttered because the plunderers comes against her, against Babylon and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows is broken for the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. Now again, the lesson is clear once more. Verse 49, as Babylon caused the slain of Israel to fall, Just as much as Babylon brought judgment upon Judah, so God will bring judgment upon them. Now, 
he describes the shame that God's people felt when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and strangers invaded. That's why he says in verse 51, shame has covered our faces and the sanctuaries of the Lord's house are laid low. But yet even though Babylon were to mount up to heaven, God says he would bring the recompense. Verse 56, the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. This is judgment in a pure form. That which they did to others, God would bring upon them. You know, I think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? Jesus said, for whatever measure has been measured out to you, that's the measure God's going to use unto you. So isn't it human tendency? I want God to measure unto me grace with a huge measure, like a steam shovel full. I want to measure out grace to others with like a teaspoon. Now, I want to measure out to others my anger and my frustration with that same huge measure. And I want God to measure anger and frustration to me with a little teaspoon. What if God says, I'll just match your measure both places? It would change our way of thinking, wouldn't it? But God simply says to Babylon, this is the golden rule in the purest form. What you did to them, I'm going to do to you. Now, I'm grateful that we're not under that in the new covenant. Yet, nevertheless, ladies and gentlemen, don't you think there's a principle there for our Christian living? This is how gracious you should be to other people. Just as gracious as you want God to be to you. Just follow that way. How forgiving should you be to other people? Just as forgiving as you want God to be to you. That's a simple yet scary principle. Verse 57. And I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her governors, her deputies, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly taken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. Notice what it says in verse 58. The broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken. I'm telling you again, this aspect of Babylon's judgment was not literally fulfilled in Jeremiah's era. It waits for a final fulfillment that will certainly come. And again, Revelation chapters 17 and 18. Well, we're almost done with this chapter. So we take a look at a little postscript here at the end. It's like we take a little breath (sighs) from all that judgment. Wow. Now a little postscript, little two sections at the end. Let's take a look at it. We're gonna see another one of these acted out prophecies. Look here, starting at verse 59. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahasiah, when he went to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Sariah the quartermaster, Sariah was the quartermaster. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. So the prophecy of Jeremiah 50 and 51 was from the Lord, yet it came through the servant Jeremiah, And it came in the fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah. Again, this was not right before the fall of Jerusalem. It's many years before. 
God prophesied it through Jeremiah many years before. And he sent a copy of these prophecies with Sariah, who was a Judean quartermaster taken to Babylon in exile with Zedekiah the king. Zedekiah the king's going to Babylon. He sends Sariah along with him to take care of things, to manage the supplies. That's what a quartermaster does. And Jeremiah says, here's the prophecies of judgment against Babylon. Take them with you to Babylon. Okay, so can you picture that in your mind? Jeremiah writes out all these prophecies. He gives them to Sariah to take to Babylon. So Sariah takes with him a scroll written with all these gnarly prophecies on them. And what does he do with them? Look at verse 61. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, whether man or beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. He writes a scroll, gives it to Sariah and says, Sariah, here's what you do when you get to Babylon. You go up to the Euphrates River and you take this scroll and you read it. Now, I can imagine Sariah doing this but reading it kind of quiet. I mean, he is in Babylon, isn't he? So he reads it kind of quiet. When he's done reading it, what does he do? He rolls the scroll back up, ties it with a string, ties it to a stone, and throws it, scroll and stone together, right there in the midst of the Euphrates River. Now, what's interesting, why would you do that? What's the whole reason behind that? Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremiah told him to do this as a graphic illustration of the catastrophe of judgment that would soon sink Babylon. Just as this scroll with its prophecies sink to the bottom of the waters, so Babylon would sink itself. Now, that scroll was never going to come up like the Babylonian Empire. It was going to be submerged forever. Okay, two things I want you to take from this. Number one, number one, and this was given to us by our good friend, John Trapp, the Puritan commentator. I'll read it and then explain it. Ready? Here's the reading. Ceremonies are to little purpose unless they have divine expositions annexed to them. May I interpret that comment from John Trapp? He sees what Sariah did was a little ceremony. Was it not a little ceremony? Take the scroll, read it, tie it to a uh, stone, throw it in the fridge. It's a little ceremony. He says this, ceremonies are of no purpose before God unless they're tied to the scriptures. Isn't that a little interesting application there? You know, we, we as believers, we can do our own ceremonies, can't we? And don't anybody kid you. Even in contemporary church where we don't have a formal liturgy, don't we have our own ceremonies? You better believe we do. We've got our ceremonies. And I'm not saying the ceremonies are good or bad or whatever. I'm just saying this. That unless you can tie scripture to their ceremonies, what good are they? They need to be tied to scripture. Thank you, John Trapp, for that little illustration. Here's the bigger point. It connects us once again to the great fall of Babylon described in the book of Revelation. 
Let's look at these verses. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Ready? Then a mighty angel took up a stone, great like a millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. In Jeremiah's prophecy against Babylon, you have a stone thrown in waters. In John's prophecy against Babylon, you have a stone thrown in waters. Each of them show that judgment is coming and it's going to sink down everything that's tied to it. Um, We talk about judgment. I, I don't know how it strikes you. It's funny. I wonder if I was talking to a room full of people just right off from State Street. Just, I mean, normal people, not necessarily believers in Jesus at all. I wonder how it would strike them if I started talking about judgment. I'll tell you what, without the work of the Holy Spirit of God upon their hearts, very few of them would think, oh yeah, I, I, I could be under judgment. Isn't it human nature in our world today to think that we're all good before God? That, that, that everybody's okay? Oh, no, not that there's not a few really, really bad out there who deserve hell. Yeah, there's a few really, really bad people. But most of us, no, we're good, we're good. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you that there's only two places in all the universe where sin will be judged. Two places, that's what it comes down to. The, the, the one place where sin will be judged is in hell. And it'll be judged in hell for all of eternity. The other place sin was judged, and this is the only other place, was on the cross at Calvary where Jesus Christ bore the sins of all who would put their trust in him. And it's if you and I hear God speak to us and say, here's your choice. You're either going to have, your sin is going to be judged. There's no escaping it. Was there any escaping Babylon's judgment? None. But it's as if God says this, I'll give you a choice where your sin's going to be judged. You put your faith in my son. You confess your sin, put your faith in my son, and I will account your sin as being judged there on that cross. Right there. The judgment I put upon him, it's as if that judgment was your judgment and you are identified in him. No, 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 I don't want to do that. No, I'll make my own way before God. I don't need to put my trust in Jesus. I'm a pretty good guy. God says, okay. Okay then your sin will be judged in the only other place in the entire universe. Sin will be judged. And it'll be judged in you forever, for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way for everyone to escape that judgment. And I mean everyone. Everyone. He says, Ever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do you realize that there has never come to Jesus a broken-hearted sinner who says, I want to repent of my sins and put my trust in you, and I want to receive the judgment that you bore from me. I want it to be taken away from me. That Jesus has never taken a sinner like that. Get out of here. Everyone who comes and puts their trust in him, he receives. What a beautiful God we serve to spare us from this judgment.
Lord, these uh, last few chapters of the book of Jeremiah, it's like a Niagara Falls of judgment. And Lord, uh, we think... um, We think of somebody trying to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel or something. And how mad that would be, how crazy. But Jesus, we're so grateful that in you, you conquered over all judgment. And so we simply look to you and the greatness of your work for us. We say, Jesus, if Babylon is going to fall, I don't want to be anywhere near it. I want to be found in you and not among the idolatries of this world. We look to you, Jesus, and we put our faith in you. And we're grateful for every chance we have to do that. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.